Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. What we just did separates us from people who don't believe in Jesus. We say, number one, that we believe there's a God. Number two, that that God had a son named Jesus who came to the earth and lived a perfect life and blessed children and healed sick people and raised dead people. And then he died on the cross to take away the sins of the world. And then he rose from the dead and he went back to heaven. And in heaven, he sent his spirit, the the spirit of the living God, to live inside of all who trust him as Savior and Lord. And he promises that he's coming back. One day, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to establish his reign for all eternity. Now, the reason I set that context for us is we're starting a new series today. As you saw on the screen, it's called God's Design for Singleness, Dating, Marriage, and Beyond. And that title has a key phrase, God's Design. God's Design for Singleness, Dating, marriage and beyond. The beyond is parenting children, parenting parents, and it's sharing uh, the family of God with every single person because God wants all of us to be part of his family. That's what we're going to talk about for the next six weeks. And as we do that, we're going to take, uh, we're going to take a view, a perspective that is very radically different from the world outside in America in the 21st century. In fact, uh, when we talk about God's design, which we mean God's model or plan for these things, let me tell you, what we're going to talk about is going to seem prudish to some. It's going to seem irrelevant to some. It's going to seem ignorant to some. And it's possibly even going to seem illegal, what we're suggesting over these next six weeks. Because we're going to look at God's design, not the world's process for all of these things. And as we do that, um, some people would say, well, you're not going to look at God's design. You're going to look at what's in this book, the Bible. And it was written thousands of years ago. And so it's irrelevant for what's going on in our life today. And I'll be the first to admit that in our culture, in 21st century America, that we think that anything that's older than six months old is out of date because the new is always better. And, and I'll be the first to admit that uh, the information that's processed and put out into this world every day, every single day, the amount of information that's being flooded, new information that's being flooded into the world is more than all the information that existed from the time of Adam and Eve through the New Testament era. That's a, that's a fact. More information every single day is out there in the world. And I'll let you know, I like new things myself. And I like it that I can get in my, you know, I get out my phone and I open it up and I can Google anything and I can find out facts about everything. But one thing I'm clear about is that just because I find out facts on Google doesn't make what the fact says inherently true or correct. Because a fact is only uh, differs from an opinion in that it can be proven to be true or false. For instance, I have brown eyes is a fact. It happens to be a false fact because my eyes are actually blue. And, and in our culture, people can pretty much say anything they want about anything and label it as true because there's no standard of truth. 
And back in 1993, there were two guys named Daryl Huff and Irving Geis who wrote a book called How to Lie with Statistics. And the purpose of the book was to show you how to use statistics to make your point about anything sound true. And the example, one example that they gave on how you can lie with statistics is uh, this statistician decided to find out the, the um, annual income of a certain region. And, and in that, this is 1993, okay, and the numbers are going to seem really low, I think. Uh, but anyway, the annual income the first year was $15,000 per year in that area. And, and then in the same general economic climate, a year later, the same statistician determined that the annual income was $3,500 a year. Now, both of those couldn't be true. I mean, $15,000 a year one year, $3,500 a year, and there was like no factory closed, nothing happened, everything was pretty much the same economically. Well, here's what happened. The first year, the statistician used the mean, which is the total of all the incomes divided by the number of people making them, and that came out to be $15,000. But the second year, he used the median income, which was take all of the incomes, line them up in a row, and find the one that's in the middle of the list, and that was $3,500. Both of them were true, but the point is, human beings have always been able to say whatever we want about anything and find a way to back it up, whether it's true or not. Here at New Life, we make some assumptions, and I'm going to tell you those assumptions before we walk into this new series. The first assumption is that there is a God. Obviously, you can't have God's design for anything if there's no God. We believe that there's a God, and as I said at the outset, that God showed himself most clearly through his son Jesus, and that God lives in us through the Holy Spirit. We believe those things to be true, and we also believe that this book, even though it is ancient, the newest part of this book is 2,000 years old, even though it's ancient, we accept it as true and valid. And so when we talk about God's design for singleness, we're going to turn to this book and dating. We're going to turn to this book and marriage and all the things we're going to talk about. And we're going to accept what this says as true. We recognize some people will not accept that. Even believers. The fact is, in the United States of America, if you're a Christian and you're an American, you're more likely to be influenced by the culture around you when it comes to these matters of singleness and marriage in particular than you are by what the Word of God says. And that's particularly true if you're 20 years of age or younger. I know that there are a lot of you in the room today who are younger than 20. If you're younger than 20, statistically, only one and a half out of 10 of you believe that this book is true. If you're younger than 20, only one and a half out of 10 of you believe this book is true. And so you're going to be more influenced by the culture than you are by, by this book. Now, if you're my age, which is 57, only half of you believe it's true. So we're taking our cues from the world, and that's not working very well. That's why we're having this series over these next six weeks. Uh, and, and I have no doubt that you could say, well, Pastor Chris, you know, if you look in this book, there's some pretty weird stuff about marriage in there. Yes, there is. In fact, if you ever heard of a guy named King Solomon, King Solomon had hundreds of wives. Was that God's design? No, it was not God's design. Because if you read to the end of the story of Solomon, what you find is that Solomon's many wives drew him away from following God. That couldn't be God's design. There's another guy in there named Jephthah. He was a judge. You probably maybe didn't hear of him unless you're a pretty serious student of the Bible. But Jephthah was a judge, and he was, gonna, he was called on by God to go and save the Israelites from bondage to some people in the, in the promised land. And, and he promised God 
that if God would give him victory in battle when he came home, he would sacrifice the first thing that came out of the door of his house when he came home. And that might seem weird, but in those days, they kept their chickens and sheep and stuff inside the house, you know? So he figured he'd come home and a chicken would come out or sheep or whatever. But what came out was his daughter. He came home from the battle. He won the battle. He came home and his daughter came out of the house. So was it God's design for Jephthah to, to sacrifice his daughter? Absolutely not. In fact, I can prove that through the Scripture. Because God talked to the Israelites and he said, you know, the pagans who worship idols around you, they sacrifice their children to their idols. And God said, I never even thought of that. I never even thought of having you sacrifice your children to me. It would never come into my mind. So we can't look at these stories. In fact, I'm going to say something that's very important. From Genesis chapter 3, which Genesis is the first book in this Bible, all the way to Revelation chapter 19-ish, everything you read about is a fallen world. Fallen means sinful. We're doing things other than what God wants us to do. And so from Genesis 3, we don't know what is the perfect design. We know what is the fallen record because it records people whose lives are imperfect. But Genesis 1 and 2 talks about perfection. And when we talk about marriage two weeks from today, we're going to talk about Genesis 1 and 2 because God has a design for marriage. And the reason the last couple chapters in the book of Revelation are not about the fallen world is because it's when Jesus came back and the world's restored. So there are only really four chapters in this whole book where everything's perfect. But the cool thing is, starting in the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Jesus, the Son of the living God, enters the picture. He came to restore things to the way God intended them to be in the first place. Jesus came to die to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can have a relationship with God restored and renewed. Redeemed is the, is the actual word. Redeemed means to be purchased out of slavery, in our case, to sin and death, and to have a new life. And so the, the, with that backdrop, what we're going to do now is we're going to turn to the account of what it's like to be single and a follower of Jesus. And the take-home point for today, and for those of you who are with us for the first time, and I know there are many here today who are here for the first time, we have one point we seek to make every week, and all of that background was to get to this point, that the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage are both gifts from God. Have you ever thought of either singleness or marriage as a gift from God? Well, that's a direct quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, which we're going to read today. We're going to be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today as we focus on singleness and God's plan for that. And verse 7 says what, what I just read, that whether we're single or whether we're married, it's a gift from God. And that's a very different idea than the world around us, isn't it? So we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Before we do that, let's pray together. Almighty God, I thank you that you are the God of the universe, the God of all that exists, the God of the living and the God of the dead. We thank you for Jesus, and we ask today that as we focus on the word that was written to us through your servant Paul, that you would speak to us clearly, especially those in the room who are single, that they might live in such a way as to honor and glorify you in that estate, and that as we turn to these various topics throughout the weeks ahead, that we will listen to your voice and then do your will in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
It's a rather longer text than we usually use, so we're going to take it a little logical chunk at a time, reflect on it, then move forward. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, we read this. Now regarding the questions you asked in your letter. So the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church in a place called Corinth, so it's called 1 Corinthians. And the reason Paul wrote the letter in the first place was because Paul had started the church in Corinth, and he had, uh, and he had been there for a while, and he taught them about Jesus, taught them the way to live their life, taught them what we would call the Old Testament Scriptures, because that's the only Bible they had in those days, and how that pointed to Jesus and how to live as followers of Jesus. Now, the people in Corinth had been pagans. They had worshipped idols. In fact, they lived in a very, very sexually immoral world. I mean, you might think, what does a 2,000-year-old culture have to say about the culture of 21st century America? Well, they're almost identical. In fact, if you lived in that day and you were lived as a Corinthians, it meant that you practiced sexual immorality. And so they want to know some things about sexuality because they haven't really understood, I mean, the idea of faithfulness to your spouse, the idea of, uh, of celibacy when you're single, these ideas had never occurred to the Corinthian people before they became followers of Jesus Christ. And so they had questions and they wrote them down and they wanted to get a hold of Paul who had left Corinth and went on to plant another church. Now, I want you to understand how hard it was for them to get a hold of Paul. I planted this church 13 years ago. Let's say that um, I said, Brad, you're going to take over. I'm going to go plant another church in Kentucky. But let's say there are no cars, no trucks, no buses, no airplanes, no transportation other than horses and mules and feet. And let's say that there are no phones and no internet and no postal service. The only thing there is, once again, is horses and mules and feet. And so you want to know something, and you want Pastor Chris to give you an answer, so you write down all the questions, and you get somebody from the, from the church family who's preferably young and strong, and you put them on a horse, and you say, Kentucky, find him, ask him, come back. And that's what they had to do. And we don't know how, I mean, it could have been months, it could have been years. I mean, you get to Kentucky, and you go, do you know a guy named Chris? Oh, yeah, there's like 500 guys named Chris in the area here. Which one? You see, so they finally find Paul. They give him the letter. Paul sits down, and he says, regarding the questions you ask in your letter. And the thing about it is Paul wrote letters to Corinth and to Philippi and to Galatia and to Thessalonica and to other places and other people. And when Paul sat down to write, this is what I picture. I don't know if this is for sure, but this is what I picture. Because sometimes he was in jail. He was easier to find, I'm guessing, when he was in jail. Sometimes he wasn't, okay? So he's sitting there, and he gets this letter. He starts reading the questions, and he sits down, and he starts to write the answers. But before he starts to write the answers, he prays. And he says, God, this is so important. I I need your answer for this. I I don't want to give him my answer to these questions. I I really want to give him your answer. And he might have even fasted, which probably would have been easy if he was in prison because they weren't giving him anything to eat anyway. And, and then he started to write. And what Paul didn't know, but what we do know, is that as Paul was writing these answers, he was actually giving God's design for these various things, in this case, singleness and marriage, to the churches not only then, but to the church today. And that's how the New Testament came. Two-thirds of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. So the first statement that Paul makes actually regarding singleness is this. It's verse 2. It says, yes. 
It is good to live a celibate life, but because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So Paul affirms singleness and a specific kind of singleness, celibacy. So you're not supposed to practice sexuality at all if you're single. And for the last 2,000 years, when people have read that letter, either out loud or in their brains, they've gone, are you crazy? Paul, are you crazy? It's not possible for a single person to do what you say. And the thing is, remember, it's not what Paul says. It's what God said through Paul. The Holy Spirit speaking through Paul says to us, this is the way it's supposed to be. In fact, God's design for every human being, God's design for every human being is celibacy and singleness or fidelity in marriage between a man and a woman. That's the premise that we're going to operate under throughout these six weeks. There's no other condition than single, single person, celibate, married person, married to a man and a woman, man and woman, one man, one woman, faithful to each other for their life. That's what God says in many places, but specifically here in 1 Corinthians. So Paul is giving specific commands, and he says right after he says that, but you know, there's a lot of sexual immorality in Corinth. I understand the culture. So if you can't be celibate and single, then get married. You should get married if you can't be single and be celibate. Get married. Okay. And then uh, Paul continues, and he's not really addressing singleness here because he has to finish up about the married thing. And, and I don't really want to dwell on this, but, and, if, and you might want to you know, might want to understand what I'm about to say. This is a word of God. It's from Scripture, but it's pretty plain, okay? It's stated pretty plainly. It says this. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, that is pretty plain. He's not talking about singleness here. He's saying if you can't remain single, if you can't remain celibate, then get married. And once you're married, sexual practice is not just something that is permissible, but it's something that you should expect if you're a husband, if you're a wife. In fact, if, if you think about this, it hasn't been done this way ever in the history of Christian people from 2,000 years ago till now. But what if it was? What if people had been obedient to this calling for the last 2,000 years? Every child ever born, every child ever born would have been born to a loving mom and dad. And the dads would have been pretty stinking happy. Okay? I know you guys are wanting to laugh, but you won't. Okay? I think the moms would be pretty happy too. The truth of the matter is that we were created as sexual beings. If you go to Genesis 1 and 2, which we're going to do in two weeks, it says we were created to be united in one flesh, but only in the condition of marriage. And so Paul is giving this command to married people to live a certain way. And the church has often avoided the topic of sexuality altogether. We've let that up to the culture. But Paul knew, Paul knew that when you leave sexual commentary up to the culture and you're living in Corinth, that's going to be bad. It's going to turn out terrible. And, and yet, here we are in 21st century America, which is just like 1st century Corinth. 
And mostly the church doesn't ever address the matter of sexuality at all. We leave that up to the culture. God is not against sex. He designed it. He just designed it for a particular estate called marriage between a man and a woman. So Paul moved back to the singleness and celibacy. This is really powerful. He says, I say this as a concession. That is that you get married. Not as a command, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Now look at that statement carefully. I wish everyone were single just as I am. Why would Paul say that? I mean, God created the earth, and after he created the earth, he created Adam and Eve, and he told them that they were supposed to be together, that marriage was the the way it's supposed to be between a man and a woman. now, Now Paul is saying you should stay single. Why would Paul try to override what God had established thousands of years before in the order of creation? Well, here's why. Paul thought Jesus was coming back next week. Paul thought Jesus was coming back next month. Certainly no later than next year. Paul thought that the people that were on the earth in his day were the last generation of people. And so what he wanted was for people to remain single if they were and to focus on serving Jesus Christ. If you're single, you don't have to think about your wife or your husband. You don't have to think about your children. You can think about Jesus and doing the things of Jesus. And and a long time ago, when I first met Mark Geppert, missionary Mark Geppert, he said to me, Chris... If you have any young adults who are not married, who are in your your church family, send them to me. Have them come for a year, just for a year. And in that year's period of time, I'll show them what can happen if they devote their life fully to serving Jesus. And they're going to see what can happen when a life is devoted to serving Jesus instead of devoted to the worldly stuff that they're taught. And he said, and some of them will continue to serve faithfully as single men or women, the rest of their lives, and some of them will serve for a while and then they'll get married. Because the gift of singleness, the gift of marriage are both from who? God. Both are gifts from God. But we don't hear that in this culture. If you're single right now, remember, singleness is not a curse. It's a blessing from God. Our take-home point reminded us of that, and now we're going to read it in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, which says, But God gives to some the gift of marriage, and to others the gift of singleness. Marriage and singleness, both gifts of God. How radically different that is from what our culture teaches. Our culture says that marriage is a temporary condition that you can get in and out of like you can get out of a parking ticket. Our culture says that singleness is the time when you try out your sexuality. Woody Allen, in interviewing Billy Graham decades ago, I think it was actually in the 60s, said, Dr. Graham, you say that single people should be celibate. And Dr. Graham said, no, I didn't say that. The God's God's word said that. And then he said, Woody Allen said, but Dr. Graham, don't you think it's sort of like buying a car? I mean, you wouldn't buy a car without taking it out for a test drive, right? It seems reasonable if you think in the reasoning of the world, but what Dr. Graham responded is, God designed us. And God's design for us is better than the human design for us. And God gave us borders to protect us. And now that question's from, or that answer's from the 60s, but it's still valid today, 50 years later. As we think about it, 
God wants what's best for us. He created us. The designer knows what's good for that which is designed. Now, I know a little bit about not following the design of a designer because every time I buy anything that I put in my house, like a garage door opener or whatever, I just get it out and start putting it together. And I get to a point where I get stuck and I go back to the directions. The design, the designer provides directions. And sometimes you can actually read them and you can understand them, and if you follow them, it works out. And that's what Paul said. It's what Dr. Graham said. It's what I'm saying today. The design of God is better than the world's design, no matter what the world may be telling us. So I could tell you all these statistics that there are about disease and about devastation and all these kind of things when you don't follow the design of God, but let's think about it just for a moment in terms of single people who actually have done what God wants. If you know single people who are actually celibate, who are actually pursuing the word and will of God in their lives, what they will tell you is that they feel better about themselves. That they feel good about being obedient to God than those who have broken God's purpose and plan and His design now, all of us can be forgiven no matter what we've done. In fact, I'm going to emphasize that as we close this morning. But, but those who have followed God's will don't have to be forgiven. And those who have followed God's will know the joy and blessing of obedience like no one else can. And if we follow God's design for singleness in this culture, it's not just going to be swimming upstream. It's going to be swimming up a waterfall because that is so opposite of what our culture teaches Now, Paul concluded his words about singleness with this encouragement. He said, so I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. So again, Paul was assuming that Jesus was coming back soon. Paul was assuming that Jesus would be back within a year or so. So no point of getting married. Let's focus on let's focus on Jesus and telling other people about Jesus. But God knew when Paul wrote those words that Jesus wasn't coming back in the next year or two. In fact, that he hasn't come back yet, and God knew that. But God let Paul write those words. Why? Because being single and focusing God on God is valid in every generation, regardless of how long it is till Jesus comes back. I don't know much about that from personal experience. I, I was married before I was 22 years old, and I was still in college when I was married. So I don't know much about singleness, but what I do know is I know single men and women who have devoted themselves to the Lord, and I want to point one of them out to you. His name is Hubert Chan, and Hubert Chan is a Singaporean. He, Mark Geppert got a hold of him when he was in his 20s, and he started taking him on mission trips, and he started teaching him and training him, and Hubert, for the last 20-plus years now, has been going to places like Cambodia and Laos and Thailand. And everywhere Hubert goes, not tens, not hundreds, but thousands of people come to know the Lord. And so God has used Hubert Chan in his singleness to bring thousands, tens of thousands of people to the Lord. And we all, at least those of you who have been coming around for a while, know of our good friend Fernando Di Carvalho from Think Missions. And he was a single man honoring God in his singleness by serving in Cuba and Bolivia and other places. Now, Fernando got married this spring. So now he's serving God in his marriedness, if you will, because both singleness and marriage are gifts from God. Paul added a concluding comment 
about the challenge of singleness with this statement. It says, but if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. The truth is, most of us weren't created for singleness. I wasn't. I figured out when I was about six that I liked girls. That was way before you're supposed to like girls. You know, I mean, people will punch you in the nose for liking girls when you're six, at least back when I was growing up. But I did. And I knew that one day I wanted to marry a girl. I didn't want to be single for the rest of my life. And I asked God when I was 17, God, will you someday show me the right woman? Whenever I find that right woman, would you just let me know? And so I was thinking it would probably be like 10 years from then. But it was actually only a few months from then. And I met this girl named Nancy Fairman, and God said, this is your wife. And I had so much confidence that it was God speaking to me that I never even asked her out for eight more months. And then eight months later, I finally asked her out, and, you know, a number of years after that, we were married. The point of that is, God intended, or at least I interpret it, that God created me to be married, not single, But Hubert Chan understands that God created him for singleness. Both are gifts and blessings from God. Now, what if you're single and you want to be married, but you haven't found that right person? What what does that mean? Does that mean God wants you to be single, or does that mean God wants you to be married? I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know this. If you're single today and you're in this room, God has a plan and purpose for your life and your singleness that will glorify him. And if you're married today, God has a plan and purpose for your life that will glorify him. And if you're single and you find somebody, that right person that you think is the right one for you, remember this, marriage is permanent. It's planning to marry this person, God said, you know, the man will leave his father and mother, the woman would leave her father and mother too, cling to each other, they'll become one. And so whenever we do weddings, what does the preacher say during the wedding vows to the each one? As long as we both shall live or until death do us part. That's the plan of God for that. Now here's something very, very important. Some of you have been married and you're not married anymore. You were divorced. Some of you are single and you haven't been celibate. And you've been listening to this message and you might feel really guilty right now. Well, if you do, that's because God has put sort of like a internal uh, device in us that causes us, especially if we know him as Savior and Lord, to know what's wrong and to not want to do what's wrong. And, And so what needs to happen is we need to repent of that and then we need to move on. We need to receive the forgiveness God offers and move on because in 1 John 1, verse 8 and 9, John said this to everybody, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, admit them, God is just and faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whatever condition we're in today, singleness or marriage, it's a gift from God. And if we use those conditions to glorify God, praise God. If we haven't, then it's just time to repent and move forward. And God loves us either way. God never, there's never a time in your life where God has ever said, I don't love you. But there are times in all of our lives when God can't look at the part of us that's turning away from him. Thank God he sent Jesus to die to, to wash that away. Now here's the commitment for today. 
It says, I will exercise my faith in celibacy or fidelity depending on my marital condition. In other words, I'll be celibate if I'm single. I'll have faithfulness to my wife, if, for me, Nancy, um, or my husband if I'm married. Now, that is so radically different than what the world is teaching out there. There's only one way that we can do that. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I can't be faithful to Nancy apart from the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit in my life. And that's how for 35 and a half years our marriage has continued to grow. You know, next week Mark Lutz is going to talk about dating because I haven't been dating for 38 years. Well, 35 and a half. I've been in this committed relationship with Nancy. I guess we did date during those few years before we got married. Now, actually, we still go on dates, but now it's Lowe's and Home Depot, you know. Um, so it's a little different than the movies and the restaurants that we used to go to. And, and so as, as we think about these conditions that we're in, God is faithful. We're not. God is faithful. And so if we're going to live out this commitment that we're talking about today, it's going to be in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me conclude by saying, if you're in the room today and Jesus Christ is not your Savior and Lord, you're, you're seeking to live your life without the, the, the power of God in it. And it's going to be impossible for you to do, even if you want to do the things I've said today, it's going to be impossible to do them without the power of the Holy Spirit. So what we believe here at New Life is that Jesus died to save us from our sins and that all we have to do to receive the forgiveness is to trust him, to ask him to be Lord, which means owner of our life, and Savior, which means he saves us from sin and death, which he's already done on the cross. And so we receive him by prayer, which just means asking him, and our life starts over. It's called being born again. In fact, that book I mentioned, Life Cycle of a Christian, that's what it's all about. After we're born again, then what? And it talks about how we grow up to be more and more like Jesus. So let's pray right now and, and ask God to work in us whatever needs to be done that we can be the people that he created us to be in our singleness or in our marriedness. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are and we thank you for your many blessings. And we thank you most of all for Jesus and his love and his life, his death and his resurrection, the power that he gives us through your spirit in us. And today I pray for any who, who would give control of their lives over to you. I ask God that they'll do that right now, that they'll just say, Jesus, come in and take over. Live in me the life that is truly life. Fill me with your spirit. And God, for those of us who have already done that, who have trusted Jesus and we've been living, if we've been living faithfully, God, I, I, I praise you and I, I ask you to continue to pour your spirit in us that we may. If we've sinned, and we all have, if we've fallen short, if we've lapsed in our faithfulness to you, God, I pray for your forgiveness. And I ask, God, that we would know your forgiveness and that we would receive it and live anew for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.